Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to June's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Coming up, we'll have the usual catch-up with Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy. After that, this month's interview is with Iggy Tan, Managing Director of ASX-listed Altec Chemicals, which is looking to develop a high-purity alumina project. High-purity alumina, or HPA, is an increasingly important product involved in the coating of electrodes and separators, which can improve the properties of batteries substantially. Before that, I would like to thank this edition's sponsor, which is ICC Sino. ICC Sino is a world-class industry research and consulting company in China, which is specialized in lithium battery market research and data analysis. Check out their services at iccsino.com. Now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Cormac. Hi, Matt. Hey, Cormac. How are you doing? Not too bad. How about you? Yeah, good, thanks. So... I think I say this every month, but it certainly has been an interesting month for news. What do you got from China this month? I think it's going to be an interesting decade as we, uh, as this industry uh, continues to grow and develop. China was a little bit quiet this month. Chinese government have been more bullish on their EV sales uh, for 2021. They've upgraded from 1.8 million uh, EV sales, NEV sales, sorry, to uh, 2 million. So they're going to be in line with some of the numbers uh, I think you've predicted of somewhere global sales, somewhere between 4.5 million and 5 million. I personally think it's going to be over 5 million this year. I think we're annualizing at the moment between 4.5 and 5, but that tends to understate the fourth quarter, which is always a lot stronger. So I would be disappointed if we had sort of less than 5 million. I think between 5 and 5.5 would be a, a brilliant result for the industry. Be, well, uh, be very interesting US, right? in terms of raw materials, but uh, we'll wait and see. Yeah, well, we've probably got enough materials to uh, to make uh, that many EVs. So that's going to be, you know, it's predicted that the, um, or forecast that the battery capacity production is going to be somewhere north of 200 gigawatts, right? So maybe somewhere close to 250 even. So that'll be significant. Uh, I think last year was 135. So it's going to be uh, close to double uh, in terms of capacity production. The raw materials, you can do the math and add up and, and see what's required. You know, it's pretty, pretty easy to do. I think by the beginning of next year, we're going to be tight in terms of uh, raw materials availability, particularly on the lithium side. But it's all good, clean fun. And I mean, I, we're obviously seeing that uh, reflected in, in prices and in spot prices and particularly sort of on the very raw materials side, the sort of lithium carbonate, the spodumene concentrate. I've been speaking to a number of the spodumene concentrate producers, and I don't really see anything more than sort of incremental growth for the rest of this year, which means that the market could be very, very tight. And we're hearing that a lot of the smaller converters in China, their their inventories are in the red zone. Even the larger converters are struggling. And it's really only Gan Feng of the major converters that's sitting on any inventory. So um, certainly that part of the market looks pretty tight in the next sort of three to six months or so. Yeah. What's interesting also is uh, you've been following is the uh, inversion of the carbonate versus hydroxide price, right? So 
finally that premium has uh, switched around earlier this month or halfway through May, really. And uh, that's interesting to see, right? So what was driving the demand of carbonate uh, and what changed in the hydroxide market? I think that's fascinating. And I mean, we, we certainly see, well, in China, it's, it's 50-50 between um, LFP production yeah. and ternary battery production. But in some parts of the world, particularly in sort of Korea, it's yeah. certainly we see hydroxide dominating. So we're definitely seeing high-grade ternary battery production dominating in those areas. So, But I think with the hydroxide inversion, it's more to do with the raw material prices than anything else. Obviously, you know, you've got two raw material prices for hydroxide, which is carbonate and concentrate, and both yeah. of those have risen significantly. So it's not unsurprising that hydroxide prices have now started to take off. Yeah, yeah. Chinese players have already stocked up in Q1, right? So there's a little bit of a hold on at the moment, really, uh, for depending on where the price is going, especially for carbonate this month or even next month before the, uh, the suppliers are holding on to uh, some of the supply because, uh, you know, if you release it, uh, prices are going to go back down where they've been enjoying this a nice premium since the end of 2020, really. I think the other thing about hydroxide, which perhaps a lot of people outside the market don't know, is it's got quite a short shelf life. So I don't know, seven or eight weeks or something uh, in its uh, LHM form. So that's one of the reasons why you, you don't see sort of big inventories being built in, in the hydroxide end. They, they sit in raw materials. So once yeah. hydroxide demand starts to move, prices move, move very rapidly because you just can't build inventories in that as a product. And production also doesn't scale that quickly either. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more carbonate available to flood into the market. But uh, to take off on hydroxide, it's going to take some time. And depending how you, uh, well, now you got the debate whether going lithium hydroxide, which is mainly produced from lithium carbonate or direct lithium hydroxide from the spodumene. So um, is that going to be a new source, a new, a, new, a new method of getting lithium hydroxide in the market quicker? And well, I mean, while- certainly... Certainly, yeah. we're, we're, we're seeing that. And I, I know, you know, obviously, that's been the massive growth area out of the Western Australian space into, into the Chinese converters. That's likely to continue going forward. Just talking downstream a little bit, looking at the EV side, we've seen, um, well, we continue to see the, uh, the Wuling Mini EV absolutely cleaning up in the market over the last couple of months. I mean, it's... Uh, I think it's got something like a 19% market share, and it's completely owning the, the Tesla Model 3 over the last couple of months. That's quite a, an interesting development, don't you think? I don't know if they've made a bad marketing decision recently, but they have. it's been identified as the uh, female, Chinese female's car of choice now. So because Wu Ling before that made a kind of a, a small, or they still do make it, a, a small cargo carrying van, uh, quite similar dimensions to this, the Wuling EV, mm-hmm. and, but it was uh, ICE powered. And that it was very good, uh, high selling uh, commercial vehicle and predominantly owned by males. Um, uh, but the, they seem to be playing the market angle now that this Wuling, the Wuling uh, Mini EV is, you know, is a, a ladies car. So <laughs> not sure is that the greatest marketing scheme they've come up with. There's no arguing the numbers. They are the king of the Chinese EV industry and basically came out of nowhere as well. Yeah. And Tesla, I mean, all sorts of sort of speculation in the Western world about Tesla losing market share in China. Is that actually 
losing market share or is it just that the Wuling is is taking market share? Tesla has been under pressure in China for a number of months now. All right. There's been a lot of news surrounding the protest during the Shanghai Auto uh, exhibition where there was a young lady dancing on the roof of Tesla holding some sign, extremely irate with Tesla. Her protest was kind of taken on on the social media and WeChat and Weibo and some other areas. And she started a little bit of a movement in China, pushback against Tesla. And, and then there's other concerns about the data accumulation of Tesla, where it's going, uh, where is it being stored? And then the, some governmental policies regarding Tesla's uh, access to secure Chinese uh, sites, such as military bases and, and areas like that. So it's okay. been a difficult uh, quarter for Tesla in China. They've begun to uh, resolve some of these issues, such as keeping all the data that Tesla does accumulate in China, in China, in, in, the, in data centers in China. So okay, uh, it okay. could be temporary. So fingers crossed for them that they've turned that corner. Also, one really important data point um, this last month, which is that BYD hit 1 million plug-in electric vehicles, which is quite a an interesting sort of data point, bearing in mind that BYD launched its first mass-produced electric model in 2008. So that's, what, 13 years to hit 1 million units. And one kind of wonders how quickly they might hit the next 1 million units. Yeah, could be in a very short period of time with the roll of the, the uh, Tang and the Han and the price now that they've fully committed to LF. P are non-cobalt-containing chemistries for the future EVs, they will be getting up to you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles production per year. So in the next two, three years, could, they could hit the next millions mark. Uh, you know, it's only going to scale, but the, you know, it's a phenomenal achievement, achievement for you know, the world's second biggest auto uh, electric vehicle maker. So Yeah, and uh, I suppose that, that sort of seeds on quite nicely to sort of the big news in the U.S., last month, which was the Ford Capital Markets Day and the articulation of Ford's plans and expectations in the sort of EV space, which I must say, I I listened to the whole thing and and, and really impressed me. And I think probably the key aspect of of that presentation was the new F-150 Lightning electric truck where Ford really seems to have stolen a march on its competitors by launching that product with a sub 40 grand price tag, which is materially below what its competitors are aiming for, and seems to sort of get into the crux of how EVs have to push towards the mass market in terms of pricing, don't you think? They are, you know, in some cases, 20,000, 10,000. If you take, for example, the Cybertruck base model, they're ten thousand US dollars cheaper. And if you look at the upper end of that market, the Rivian, you know, it's almost thirty thousand dollars cheaper. So it is quite aggressively priced, but they know their market. They've been doing this since two thousand five. The Ford F one fifty series. They know their customers now and what they want. And you'll notice, looking at the Ford Lightning, it's not that different from the twenty twenty ICE version, the twenty nineteen ICE version. You'll know. Without seeing a Ford sticker, that it's Ford F one fifty, and that's what their customers like. Because basically, the uh, the vehicle hasn't uh, has changed very little uh, in its uh, 15, 20 years uh, years of production. I think the thing that Ford offers that none of its 
EV competitors can even dream of is is its customer base. I, I mean, they were saying on the on the presentation that they've already got 17 million customers for the F-150. So fine, they will potentially bring in new customers for, for an electric F-150, but they can also utilize 17 million already happy customers. And I think all of the other EV developers would just dream of that as a, as a base. This is something new. It's different from all the other EV presentations by Tesla or Volkswagen or even Neo, where Tesla are, are, are creating this model to get into America and establish a market. Neo also, less so Volkswagen. But yeah, as you said, Ford already has this market and they're putting this into this market that's going to be absorbed by 17 million users, our previous users. It's quite different. The from their years of research on uh, you know how to the usage of the Ford F one fifty, especially commercially, they know you know the like they're going in quite aggressively with this onboard a uh, nine point six kilowatt hour power pack. Basically, that you know, this is what the the commercial tradesman is going to require when he's out in the field of the job, and and you know Tesla probably doesn't have this information to hand and uh, the exact needs of the commercial tradesman. So um, you know I can see that uh, they they hit a lot of give the pump, not a nails on the head here, what they feel that their customers are going to require from switching from the IC version to the EV version. So it'll be interesting to get the reviews once it's finally released uh, next year. But um, yeah. I think it's going to be uh, accepted quite well. I think Ford's ability and exposure to the commercial market is a huge differentiator compared to most DV producers, and interestingly enough, most ICE, legacy ICE producers who are moving into EVs don't really have that exposure to the commercial market. I think potentially that's a very interesting sort of move by Ford and sort of slightly differentiates it from what else is in the market. And I think the other very interesting move by Ford is in terms of its battery architecture. So instead of announcing one battery architecture for all of its vehicles, Ford's announced five battery architectures, and it justifies that because it says, well, its vehicles have quite significantly different wheelbases. So its electric truck is very different to its light commercial vehicle, which is very different to the small cars that you see in Europe and Asia. And Ford sort of gets around this by saying, well, 80% of the parts are common to all of the the architectures. So it's going to be quite interesting, I think, to see whether Ford can make that work as an approach, but certainly it's a very, very interesting approach to sort of building up the battery architecture from the ground upwards. So they're thinking of their other best-selling uh, vehicles, such as the uh, Ford Transit, very well-selling uh, vehicle by, by Ford, and uh, obviously quite different wheelbase to a passenger electric vehicle or even the Ford F-150. So um, it'd be quite difficult to do all that on the one MEB, uh, similar to what a Volkswagen is going to do. As you mentioned, it's going to be 80% of the same part. So, um, and, you know, it, it, they can still keep costs down and, uh, and scale manufacturing at the same time. Yeah. So, And Ford, again, talking about sort of lowering pack costs. Interestingly, in the Ford presentation, the pack cost reduction or, or the cost reductions were broken down in a little bit more detail. And the bulk of it was outside the, the cell itself. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't bet against Ford being able to get that down. But obviously, we have material concerns about the impact of 
um, higher raw material prices on sell costs going forward. So it might be that we have seen the end of the sell cost reductions, but uh, we could still see pack cost reductions going forward. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, it's quite different. They're uh, so they estimate they're going to get to hundred dollars per kilowatt hour by twenty twenty five, mid decade, and eighty towards um, twenty thirty, which is quite different to what we've seen. The other automakers, uh, you know, were expecting to get to this is on pack level for Ford, so it's quite different what we've seen. And uh, as you mentioned, they're only they're only expecting to get a six percent reduction uh, by uh, varying the materials in the ba- battery chemistry itself. They're relying more on scaling the value chain. They're going to get 15% reduction there, 8% with localization and JV partnerships, which is different to what Tesla are doing, and, and Volkswagen, who are going to build their own battery cells. Ford made it quite clear they're going to partner with SK Innovation in their plants in North America and outside. Again, they're 4% reduction, uh, optimizing the pack and the structure and uh, the integration into the vehicle. And uh, just the engineering seems to where they're planning to get the most cost reduction. That's fascinating, and I, I, you know, you wouldn't bet against these guys like Volkswagen and Ford, General Motors, who've been ma- making at scale for so many years, and and are so good at sort of forcing costs down with economies of scale. And you know, now they've actually sort of sat down and engineered these EVs from the ground upwards, rather than trying to bung a battery into an existing product you do get the impression that there are further sort of synergies and, and, and cost savings to be made. It's only going to get cheaper. So they, they estimate that it'll be 40% reduction between now and 2025. So, you know, they don't give the numbers out, but um, that's, you know, it's all close to 50%, which is phenomenal reduction in five years. So, I mean, fingers crossed on that, because obviously, as, we, as we've said again and again, it's the price of EVs at the moment, which are holding people back from buying them. So if we can get those prices down and, and still maintain profitability for the automakers, then we have a, a, a viable industry, but it's sort of still teetering on the brink at the moment, I guess you would say. Well, oil prices are going up again, so um, it's good for this market. It's a fine balancing act. And uh, again, this is the downstream end, but upstream, these guys, they need to make money as well. So got to share the profits. Yeah. Okay. Well, you talked about oil prices there, and I mean, it, it sort of seeds a little bit into the sort of material slash commodity end of the business. And I think one of the key things that came out in May was we started to see resource nationalism coming out in a number of countries, but particularly in sort of Latin America and Africa. We've obviously got the elections in Peru, which is a major, major copper producer. We've got concerns about the a change to the royalty regime in, in Chile, which is the biggest copper producer in the world. Copper, obviously, a, a key component of electric vehicles and, and of batteries and indeed of renewable power as well. So that's going to be an issue we've had during the month, a ban on exports of copper concentrate from DRC, although that's uh, now been lifted, I understand. And over the course of the summer, we've got uh, elections in Zambia where the mining industry will be very much in focus. So, you know, it's not uncommon for resource nationalism to come into play once, uh, once countries see commodity material prices rising. But obviously, in the current environment where supply is very much constrained and there's been underinvestment in new supply, it's not particularly welcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as you mentioned, this 
this usually accompanies right what might be the start of a uh, super cycle, right? In the first indication, there's uh, reports of labor unions stepping up involved. I think in in Canada, um, there's a, a strike on at the moment in uh, whose mind is that again? Um, yeah, in Sudbury, I think is is Sudbury. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a mine strike in Sudbury, which is obviously on the nickel nickel slash copper side. There's strikes in, in Latin America and Chile on the copper side. So everybody wants to get their money's worth once material prices start to rise. They obviously forget that for the last four or five years, it hasn't been a great uh, yeah. environment for the miners. So uh, it will be of increasing importance. And of course, if, if miners are successful in negotiating pay rises, if governments are successful in raising royalty regimes, that raises the cost of production. It raises the cost curve for all of these materials, which therefore sort of raises, tends to raise prices because miners have to lock in margins. So yeah. it's positive for, for those operations not in the regions affected, but it's not great for those in the regions affected and it is not great for consumers. This industry is so sensitive to price that as soon as it becomes more price competitive to do, you know, mine hard rock in Canada, for example, uh, compared to sourcing um, or even cobalt from uh, comparing to from sourcing from uh, third countries are, are relatively unstable countries or countries that are prone to resource nationalism, then the industry will have no problem shifting if these projects can get up and running in, in a timely fashion. But we saw what happened in Australia. You know, the hard rock came on very quickly. Yeah. And uh, you might see something similar in Canada, especially for the EU and uh, US markets. Yeah, I mean, well, that's something that we looked at uh, in the in the Focus article this month. And uh, feel free to have a look at Boundary Materials Review if you want uh, more information on that. Now, one interesting, well, a couple of interesting takeouts in the space this month. We had POSCO taking a minority share in the Ravensthorpe nickel mine from, from First Quantum. We had a Wailu Metals making a bid for Naront Resources, which is a nickel developer in Canada. But the interesting story, I think, is the Ganfeng offer for, for Bacanora, which has got the clay project in Mexico. Quite an interesting move by Ganfeng. I think they already had 22% of that, right? Or, yeah. or it was 17, and then they bought in for 22. Has that offer been accepted? Well, I think it's going through. And I mean, there are a number of shareholders who are kicking up a stink saying it materially undervalues the company. How much are they coming in for on a ton on that then? Um, Oh, let me just go and check my numbers. Got me on that one. Um, On a resource ton basis, it comes through at... uh, Move swiftly on, I'll come back to it. All right, all right. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I'd like to know because this is a clay, right? So uh, it's much different to some of the other projects. So I wanted to see. Uh, I mean, for me, that is the risk. I mean, it's a clay project. I mean, Gan Feng have suggested that they believe because it's a clay project that they've got experience of that. But but certainly, you know, I do know a lot of people who have a a material concern that that project is under under engineered. So here we right. go. It's fifty two dollars per resource ton of lithium carbonate equivalent. So that's yeah. just below the price that Gan Feng paid for the shares in the Kalcharya 
Olerov project in Argentina in 2019 and 2020, but it's above the price that SQM paid for its stake in Earl Grey in 2017, which is a hard rock project in Australia. So, I mean, it's not a it's not a racy price by any stretch of the imagination. It's not a great price, but given the yeah. uncertainties, not only with how viable the clay project is, but also with Mexico from a geopolitical point of view, because there have been rumblings that Mexico wanted to nationalize its lithium industry, it probably looks like a relatively fair price. One concern would be, uh, again, might be resource nationalism, uh, might uh, so, but it'd be difficult to uh, see Gangbang um, making this offer without uh, understanding the geopolitical uh, scene. Uh, yeah. On Sunday, so. Yeah, and, and also understanding the the science of the project as well. I mean, they have been around for for a while on that project, so they've obviously built up their knowledge base and, and decided that it's something that they can do. But I've always kind of regarded the clay projects as as an option on the lithium price. Given that the lithium price has doubled in the last year, then maybe it is a reasonable option at, at this stage. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how successful that project is. And, and interestingly, after decrying the lack of capital raisings in May, we found both Ganfeng and Livent coming to the market to raise capital at the beginning of June. So that was a bit slow in coming. Uh, did it get a, wasn't a widely uh, supported, was it? Um, I believe there was the. Uh, Clean energy uh, sell-off going on uh, the last couple of months in the U.S. Uh, certainly, I, I mean, I think in in China on the stock markets, the the battery space has been going ballistic for the last couple of uh, days. I mean, CATL hit a record a couple of days ago in terms of its share price. I mean, BYD's been on a, a huge roll as well. So um, I would imagine that. I don't know, but I would imagine that Ganfeng got that uh, got that raise away, um, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder is that a CATL action on this uh, rumor that they're going to be building a uh, gigafactory in uh, Shanghai to support uh, Tesla, probably, or as well as some others. That's interesting. Perhaps a, a story for next month. We might know more about it next month. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that is a good place to draw to a close. So I will say um, thanks very much to Cormac for your time and uh, look forward to talking next month. Uh, yeah, uh, look forward. We can, uh, next month, it will be interesting to get into the, uh, we'll know more about it again, the 100-day uh, White House review of the domestic supply chain. Uh, yeah. The, the yeah. Large capacity batteries. Agreed. There there's there's and little bits and pieces of, of information percolating out, but hopefully we'll have more detail yeah. by, uh, by next month when we talk. I think so. Okay, yeah. thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Now moving on to our interview. I'm delighted today to be joined by Iggy Tan, who's Managing Director of ASX-listed Oltec Chemicals. Oltec is planning to develop an integrated operation to produce high-purity alumina, or HPA, which is emerging as a vital additive in next-generation battery materials. Iggy, welcome to Recharge. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me. I think it's probably fair to say that many of our listeners won't have heard much about HPA, so maybe we can start with some questions on the industry. What's the size of the HPA market now, and what sort of size do you expect it to reach by 2030? Yeah, so Matthew, uh, HPA for your listeners is actually high-purity alumina. It's uh, 99.99% purity, and uh, generally... High-purity alumina is used in 
the LED industry. So they used to make uh, synthetic sapphire or the sapphire wafers for LEDs. And is also now being used in um, lithium-ion batteries so for coating of the separators, coating of the, the anodes and the cathodes. So high-purity alumina you're referring to. Uh, the market is relatively small. It's a, a quite a niche market, around 30,000 tons per annum. Uh, and the forecast growth is uh, probably to rise to 270,000 tons. So very similar growth curve to the lithium business because it's following uh, lithium-ion batteries. And also rapid growth because the feedstock goes to produce uh, LEDs. And you know the LED lighting is sweeping the world. A lot of countries are now moving to LEDs because it uses one-sixth the amount of electricity. So very efficient lighting, and really it's the lighting of the future. Excellent. So that's just under a 10 times increase in the market over, over 10 years, so, so pretty significant. Can you talk a little bit about the usage of HPA in battery anodes and, and, and cathodes and separators and how it can improve the properties of batteries? Yeah, I guess um, high-purity alumina is used today in the separators of batteries. As you know, as the temperature of the batteries start to heat up, the polypropylene separators tend to shrink on the temperature. And when they allow the positive and negative terminals to contact, you have a short and then you have a thermal runaway. And what they discovered is to maintain the integrity of the separators, They've been coating the separators with high-purity alumina. So that's one, one aspect of where alumina is used in a lithium battery. The other next potential aspect is in the anode part of the battery. And uh, our company, Alltech, has been doing a lot of work in using our technology and using uh, alumina coating technology for the anodes part of the battery. Now, Matthew, you would know that a lot of the developments in the lithium battery has been based around the cathode side. Uh, you would know that more nickel and cobalt has been added to the cathode to increase the uh, energy density of the battery. But I, it's fair to probably say that now the work is shifted to the anode side. And what uh, they found is that by coating the graphite with a, a lumina layer, does a few things to the battery. The first one, it uh, prevents the first cycle loss capacity. Now, I, I'm not sure whether you know, Matthew, that when you have a brand new battery and you charge the battery, the lithium ions go from the cathode to the anode side. And when you discharge it, the lithium ions go back. But ten, not many people realize that 10% of that lithium stays on the anode side and it becomes inactive to the battery. So it doesn't play any further part in the battery. So imagine that. Before the customer gets the battery, 10% of your lithium becomes inactive to the whole life of the battery. And this is called the first cycle loss capacity. Uh, what essentially happens, Matthew, is that the graphite material is coated by lithium uh, and forms an SCI layer. And, uh, and that SCI layer traps the lithium and essentially uh, makes it inactive to the battery. So the industry has uh, been trying to resolve this problem for 
quite a while now because they realise that if they can resolve it, then 10% more lithium is available to the, the, the life of the battery and you would expect to have increased battery life from that. And what uh, the industry of a lot of research has been done in the industry where alumina coating of the graphite material prevents this SEI layer. And today they have three ways of coating the graphite material. One is the vapor method or, or atomic vapor deposition. And that tends to be quite expensive and complex. So it doesn't lead itself to mass production. The other way is the solid method where they get uh, fine alumina powder and they coat the graphite uh, with this alumina powder. It tends to be one of the disadvantages. It's not a continuous layer. And then the third method is a, a liquid method, uh, which is what we employ. And we coat the graphite material with uh, alumina at around two nanometers, very thin layer alumina. Just to give your listeners context of what a nanometer is, it's a millionth of a millimeter. And so your red blood cell is around 30,000 nanometers, and we're, we're coating material at two nanometers. So a very thin layer of alumina around the graphite has the benefit of resolving this first cycle loss. And there are also some research that says that by coating the graphite with alumina, it prevents thermal runaway. So the, the, the research shows that with the nail penetration tests for uncoated graphite, the temperature soars to 600 degrees and you got a thermal runaway. Whereas with the uh, coated graphite, alumina coated graphite, with the nail tests, the temperature is only about 90 degrees and essentially it doesn't catch fire at all. And do I understand that your technology allows, I don't know how you call it, like a greater consistency of coating than other technologies? Yeah. So we um, manage to coat graphite materials, a very continuous uh, alumina layer around the graphite materials. We have now used that in our battery cell testing. And uh, we recently announced uh, positive results from that. It looks very promising that the coated graphite definitely performs much better than the uncoated graphite. So uh, we see the future of graphite having alumina layer coatings. And we recently announced a pre-feasibility study of a battery materials coating plant in Germany. And we, are, as phase one, we intend to coat uh, 10,000 tonne per annum of graphite material. In fact, we, we did recently sign an MOU with uh, SGL Carbon, one of the largest uh, graphite producers in Europe. And obviously, they're very interested in us coating their graphite with the, the alumina technology that we have. Okay. I think one of the most exciting things at the moment in, um, in anodes is the sort of introduction of silicon which is helping to improve the energy density of batteries, particularly sort of in the LFP area. Can you talk a little bit about the use of HPA in terms of coating silicon and why this is such a, an exciting growth segment for, for HPA producers? So silicon or metallic silicon has 10 times the capacity of graphite. It's actually a very promising anode material. So 10 times the capacity, Capacity means there are 10 times more sites that the lithium can sit in in the structure. 
Uh, so for an uh, anode material, that is that is very important. But Matthew, the problem with silicon is that there are three major problems with silicon. The first one is it expands 300% in volume when it gets lithiated. So during the performance of the battery, lithium is absorbed into the silicon. The volume of that material expands 300%. And generally what happens is that it starts to fracture. And when you have that material fracture on the anode side with the copper collector, you have uh, delamination. So that's one of the biggest problems. The second problem is that the first cycle loss, instead of 10% like in graphite, it's probably close to 40 to 50%. So what happens is that because there's so many active sites on a silicon uh, particle, it grabs 40 to 50% of lithium and makes it inactive. So that's a big problem. And the third problem is that it has a high fade performance. So uh, because of the, the first two, the uh, a silicon graphite anode actually has much shorter life, even though the potential for the density, energy density to be higher, it has a shorter life because of those problems. So what people have done today is, at a, is use silicon monoxide and some up to 5% of silicon monoxide is used in batteries today. The problem with that is that it also expands in volume at 134%. It doesn't have the same energy density as a metallic silicon. So if you see the three main major problems, what we are trying to do is use our alumina coating on silicon to resolve those three problems. So if you, if, you, if you think about it, what they've done is that they've used finer and finer silicon particles, in fact, down to 150 nanometers, where it doesn't fracture. And, and so these small particles can withstand the, the lithiation process, but the problem is that the cost to produce these very fine material is prohibitive. And so what we're trying to do is use our alumina coating to coat the silicon particles. The first step, it, it prevents the uh, first cycle loss. And the second step, we hope that it contains the lithiation process so that the, the particles doesn't fracture. So um, just to give you an, an idea of if you can add 10% of silicon in, in graphite, your Tesla model Y, say, doubles in distance from 437 kilometres to close to 700 kilometres. So yeah. quite, a, quite a major prize then in terms of if you can get the, uh, the process chemistry correct. Yeah, that's right. And if you can add 20% of silicon and graphite, you triple the distance of the, the Model S and, uh, and 30% will give you up to... 1,300 kilometers for a single charge. Now, wow. what that means is that car makers don't have to necessarily give you 1,300 because often you don't want that, that distance, but it, it really reduces the cost of the, uh, the battery in an electric vehicle. So, so you can cut the size of the battery and, and still have a reasonable distance, which obviously makes the, the electric vehicle more economic. 
exactly. And, uh, you know, Tesla has the vision of uh, getting the production costs of the batteries well below the $100 per kilowatt hour mark. And the key is really the use of, of metallic silicon in the anodes and, and the challenges around it. So this this really is uh, this really could be a very significant technology. So so moving on, most HPA is made uh, currently utilizing aluminium metal, which has its own drawbacks. But your approach, Altex approach, is a little bit different. Can you talk a little bit about your approach and its advantages in the industry? Uh, certainly. Uh, and before I, I do that, I just want to finish the the last topic where we have. Coated silicon with aluminum material in the laboratory. We have now conducted a battery test. So we're seeing promising performance of coated silicon versus non-coated. And we recently signed up a, an MOU with Ferroglobe, one of the largest silicon producers in Europe. So they're obviously interested in us coating their silicon with our aluminum. Uh, but on the question of how do you produce this high-purity alumina, I guess we're a, a disruptive process. The current producers of HPA uh, uses aluminium metal as their feedstock. So they buy aluminium metal, they dissolve it, and then they crystallize it and produce high-purity aluminum. And where does aluminium metal come from? It comes from the bauxite industry. So they, they mine bauxite. They make smelter-grade alumina through the aluminum refineries. They sell it to the aluminum smelters to make aluminum metal, and then these guys go back to aluminum. So it sort of doesn't make any sense. And the question I ask people is that if you can bypass this aluminum metal stage, would you be disruptive and would you be the lowest cost producer in the world? Essentially, the answer is yes. And we have disruptive technology where we can go straight from the ore to the high-purity alumina in a single step. And um, But we don't start with bauxite because bauxite has got a lot of iron. We start with uh, kaolin, which is a very uh, weathered material, very low iron and a lot of low impurities. And we access the alumina content from kaolin and we have a, a chemical process using hydrochloric acid where we extract that kaolin, we uh, purify that material and then produce 99.99% alumina. And, um, the project itself is in uh, Australia, the, the, the deposit is in Western Australia, and we are uh, in the process of funding and building a uh, chemical plant that extracts that alumina in Malaysia, in Johor, in Malaysia. And we're in the, the process of finalising the project finance for it. Uh, we have KFW IPEX, which is a German bank that is doing the senior debt, and we're currently in the process of uh, accessing the secondary debt through the green bond market. Uh, and hopefully uh, we will then also raise the 100 million of uh, equity and commence the project. In fact, we've, we've recently raised about 50 odd million in the last three years and we've essentially commenced the construction process. So we've completed the first two stages of, uh, of the construction. So what sort of, Debt to equity ratio are you targeting for, for the sort of in, integrated project? We, we're, we're targeting around the 60% debt equity ratio. The total use of funds is around 390 million that we're accessing. 190 million of debt, senior debt, will be from a German bank or KFW. 
100 million from the green bond market. And we're looking uh, to find a joint venture partner that will help us with the 100 million of equity. And, and, and just remind me what, what the total capital cost is of the integrated project. The capex is around uh, 300 million. And the total use of funds we're accessing is 390. That includes contingency, uh, working capital, debt service, and so on. So uh, we're quite well advanced. And obviously, there's a lot of interest. We have recently been also accredited as a green process because the fact that we don't use uh, aluminium metal, we actually are 49% less greenhouse gases for each ton of HPA that we make compared to the conventional process. So we have been accredited as a green project, and that's where we can access the green bonds for our secondary debt. Excellent, excellent. And remind me how far you are along in terms of pilot plant testing, commercial plant testing. What sort of test work have you done on the on the uh, project? So on the HPA side, you know, we've done all the uh, laboratory pilot plant work, and we, we essentially have completed a bankable feasibility study because of the uh, we have now also a uh, EPC contractor with a SMS group out of Germany. They will give us a lump sum fixed price contract. So all the work on that side of HPA is uh, well developed. Uh, we had we went through 18 months of due diligence with uh, the German government because they are essentially underwriting the project. And uh, from that, we've got all the, the technical work, all the legal work and so on. And, and essentially, the project is is really ready to go once we get the uh, project finance. On the alumina coating side in the German battery materials coating plant, we're essentially in the process of a, a pre-feasibility study and early stage uh, test work there. So much earlier stage, but essentially a lot of interest coming from Europe. As you know, the lithium-ion battery is probably going to be a European story in the next decade. I guess in the past, it's been Japan, Korea, and China. But in the next decade, it will be all about Europe. Some 600 kilowatts of battery-making capacity has been announced in Europe. Where has that been driven from? Essentially, from regulations. Um, car manufacturers need to, to meet a uh, 95 grams per CO2 per kilometer target. To meet that, then half their fleets have to be electric vehicles. And uh, and Europe has stated that they want to be less reliant on materials coming from uh, outside. And so there's a lot of focus on providing all the materials in the battery making from Europe. So downhill with the following wind, when could you be in production on, on these assets? With the HPA, we expect that there will be a two 18-month construction and then maybe the ramp up. So when finance comes through, you're looking at two years before you get the first product out. The German battery materials cleaning plant, we are putting a lot of effort into fast tracking that work. Uh, and again, the construction will probably be 18 months as well. So it all depends on uh, finance. And uh, obviously, we are, uh, we've got quite a very high profile collaborators with uh, SGL Carbon and Ferroglobe, uh, and we are talking to the uh, European battery industry as well. Okay, okay. 
what you've described here is a fascinating, rapidly growing industry, which is going to be very much linked to the success or failure of the lithium-ion battery tech going forward. What do you think that investors aren't really getting about Altec? Well, because it's such a, a new, not a new material, is is less known. There is always an education of investors on the market. And Matthew, I, I don't know whether you know, but uh, this is a very similar curve to the lithium industry. When I first started in the lithium industry 12 odd years ago, not many people understood what lithium was. And I remember going to a lot of the fund managers and describing what lithium was and and then educating them about the potential for the, the lithium market from scooters at the time and electric vehicles from China and so on. So there's a whole education process that has to happen. And, and uh, subsequently, you know, we at Galaxy, we built the Mount Kaplan project and also the lithium carbonate plant in China. And, and this is just a very similar process where you have to educate the market on what this material is and how it will be used in the future batteries and then the potential for it. I'm quite used to the, uh, the, the education and uptake process. Excellent. Okay. Iggy Tan, Managing Director of ASX Listed Altec Chemicals, thanks very much indeed for your time today. Thank you, Matthew. That concludes this month's podcast. I'd again like to thank our sponsor, ICC Sino. And you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review. You can subscribe at www.batterymaterialsreview.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>